Gospel according to Luke, the 18th chapter. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. That is the gospel of the Lord. Okay, the first thing about this sermon is the absolute futility of me even attempting to give it, because it's, as per the parable, it's going to be a sermon about humility, and like, who's supposed to like stand in front of a group of people and act like the expert in humility? Because, see, I find this humorous, because like, then you'd be proud, which would be the reverse of what you're trying to get at. So if you thought of it that way, you'd think to yourself, well, that's at least worth a chuckle. But maybe you won't, and I'll just keep going. So just from the beginning, anything I say in this sermon is not from me. It's from the Bible, or it's from other authorities on humility. I am not the expert on uh, pride, humility, or any of that stuff. Okay, now that we got that kind of out of the way, not real effectively, let's keep going. Uh, so, I find it interesting that 66 years ago, in 1953, so at some level, not that long ago in many of our lifetimes, uh, a former president of the United States who served as president of the United States for seven years was able to get in his car in Missouri along with his wife and drive all the way to the East Coast on a multi-day, like 20-day little outing uh, with absolutely no uh, Secret Service protection whatsoever and just staying in random motels along the way. Uh, which president was this? This was Harry Truman and Bess. Uh, about 11 months after he leaves office, they just decide they'd spend so much time in Washington that they didn't even know what the country looked like anymore, so they just got in their car and started driving and headed east. Uh, that's just amazing when you think about it. Uh, uh, what's the other kind of distinguishing trait about Harry Truman? He was the last president we've had who did not have what? A college degree, which is kind of fascinating. Now, if you read history about Harry Truman, uh, certainly he was an intelligent man, and he certainly had his own share of ego, but what most historians grant to him was that one of his defining and good traits as a leader was that he had a, a kind of a natural sense of humility about him. And when you think about it, maybe there's some truth to the fact that the bigger the ego you have, the more Secret Service protection you think you need. Don't know if it works out that way, but uh, Harry Truman, defined in part by his humility. What actually is that? Clearly, Scripture thinks it's a spiritual gift. Uh, what does the secular world think about it? If you looked at the opening thoughts section in your bulletin, which comes right before the call to worship. If you didn't look at it yet, look at it when you go home. It's interesting stuff. So there was an article in the paper just this last week about uh, secular social science research on humility. And uh, really interesting stuff. Among other things, one of the th things they did was try and define what humility is. 
And, and they did this, even though this, is, this was secular research, they were looking a lot at religious communities. And, and what they said was, in particular, with, with religious people, humility is, is having kind of a calm assurance or being at home with who you are and what you believe without feeling like other people's beliefs are a threat to what you believe. And in fact, you have kind of a natural curiosity about what other people believe, and perhaps there are things you can learn from them that doesn't mean that it somehow negates or, or puts down or threatens what you believe. To be humble is to be secure in yourself and therefore able to allow other people to, to also be good, to have things of value, to not make them who you are. Another interesting thing about that research was that uh, humility is not an uh, inherent personality trait. It's actually something that can be learned over time. And as you might guess, people who are perhaps most in need of a little humility are the ones most likely to resist learning about it. Interesting little observation there as well. All of which I think is true, and Jesus, great religious thinker and social scientist that he was, is, is very aware of all of that stuff as he crafts today's parable, which, as you might recall, the evangelist Luke introduces by saying, Jesus told this parable to some who were, uh, what's the exact phrasing, who were secure in their own righteousness and, and held others in contempt. So having encountered an audience where at least some people were in that place, Jesus proceeds to tell today's parable. Now let's meet the characters real quickly. The two characters in the parable are going to be a Pharisee. Remember in Jesus' lifetime, Pharisees were like you. They weren't priests. They weren't religious professionals. They were lay people like you. However, they were dedicated in addition to whatever their, whatever their occupation was to uh, constant learning, memorization, and then living out uh, the laws of Moses. Uh, they frequently are the debating foils with Jesus, and therefore I think unfortunately Christianity for 2,000 years has kind of made them the bad guys, and by extension frequently the Jewish people the bad guys. That's not the intent in, in the stories. The, the Pharisees for the people who heard these stories uh, maybe were a little persnickety and a, a little bit over the top, but they were uh, absolutely dedicated to something good and important. So that's one character in the story. The other character is someone who would have been universally hated by everyone, would have been a tax collector. And, and don't, you know, this is not just IRS jokes and all that stuff. I mean, the, the issue with a tax collector in that world is it was typically a Jewish person working on behalf of the occupying Roman armies to collect their taxes, therefore, as far as the people were concerned, selling them out to their oppressors and skimming a little bit more off the top for themselves, so enriching themselves at the expense of the poor people from whom they were collecting taxes in the first place. There was something extraordinarily reprehensible about the tax collectors, and uh, they are an easy negative in any story in some other storyteller's mouth, but not Jesus. So Jesus starts the story about how two men go to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. 
little pause in the story. Uh, how many people are sitting in the front pews today? <clears throat> I'm out to pew three here before I get to anybody. Uh, why historically do people sit in the back of church? A, to get away from the preacher. We all know that. I mean, you don't even have to say that. I'll say it for you. Why else do people historically and religiously sit in the back, not the front? Hey, 8 o'clock had tons of answers, not to like compare you to each other, but they, they were like all over this. Uh, I think in some churches there was a tradition that people kind of like bought or rented the pews, and frequently the, the, the most affluent people did that in the front. I think I've heard that that is a tradition. I, I think what I was thinking of is that frequently the front space is thought of as sacred space, and so everyone kind of in humility decided they weren't worthy of the sacred space, and so they sat as far back as they could. And I think that is accurate and, and cuts across a variety of religious traditions. So in this story, two men go to the temple to pray. What are their locations? What's the description of where the, of where the tax collector prays? Who remembers that or is looking at their bulletin and can read it to us right now? Uh, he's a far off. So in other words, he's a far off from the front. Therefore, he's like all of you. He's sitting in back. He's where the crowd is, and that's where he's saying his prayer. Where, where, is, the, where is the Pharisee located? Standing by himself. In other words, whatever reason it was, it occurred to him that he was worthy to be in front, and so he's in front, and nobody's around him because... Nobody else will go up there. Now, uh, as often happens with Jesus' parables, he allows us to read the mind of the people who are in the story. So the mind of the Pharisee is what? He says a prayer in which he says, I thank God that I'm not like all these thieves, rogues, adulterers, and especially that tax collector, and I do all this awesome stuff. Where is he standing again? Not just in front, he's alone, right? And, and what's his other trait? He's a, what's the title of the sermon? He's a scorekeeper, right? He's keeping score. And, and what's one of our traits as human beings when we keep score? When we keep our own score, does it tend to go up or down? It goes up, we like assuming up is a, is a good thing. We're not golfers by trait. You know. <laughs> We want it going down, but yeah, we're playing basketball. We want our score to go up. We have a tendency to keep track of the things that we do really well. And when it comes to other people, what do we do? We tend to keep track of all of the things they do wrong so that we can blame them for it or make ourselves look good in comparison. He's a scorekeeper. But scorekeeping like that makes us very lonely at some point. Meanwhile, think, think of the children's message here. Meanwhile, the, the, the tax collector is back in the crowd. And, and remember what Muriel said. I mean, God already knows you know, the things that we do good. We don't have to tell God that. But, but God also knows the things that we do poorly. And at some level, confession is, is a powerful thing. But at, at another level, you, you don't have to list that out either. Notice that, the, notice that the tax collector skips enumerating all the things that he's done wrong 
And he just gets to the point, which is what? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He's painfully aware of his score in life because he's been honest enough and, as it turns out, humble enough to keep score in a different way, which is, first and foremost, you and I as people of faith should probably keep track of the things that we screw up and do that are hurtful to others. That's a really important score to keep. And he has done that, and having done so, he just asks for mercy. Just ask for mercy. And perhaps by extension there is some possibility that he also has succeeded at the other part of a different sort of scorekeeping, which is the capacity to notice the, the goods and the benefits and the blessings of the people around you and to be able to remind them of that when they are down on themselves, to be able to compliment them for the, the goodness that they do or are and to be able to, to, to use their example to inspire yourself and others to similar goodness. You see, there's a different sort of scorekeeping that, that causes you to actually be back in the community, back surrounded by the people, not, not somewhere by yourself. And so, so now maybe you begin to see what those social scientists were on to when they said that humility is, is something we can work at and actually learn through life. And, and who here couldn't do a little better job of changing how we keep score in life? A little less of the, of the I'm awesome and you stink. Not that we need to put ourselves down, but let's just be real and say, this is where I fail. And, and thank God that you're here because you or you or you have blessed me or been good or rose above something to be something much better and more than you might have been. How does, how does humility show itself uh, in, in the life of faith? I, I, I just think of a, a faith community like this one. We belong to this larger denomination, the ELCA, and, and um, people kind of sometimes put down you know, churches like ours, you're, you're losing members and you, you don't have beautiful, big, uh, megachurch buildings and um, lots, of, lots of other stuff. And, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm pretty proud to be a part of a faith community like this. I hope you are too. And, and I think one of the strengths of faith communities like this is we, we actually don't spend a lot of time out there telling everybody else how awesome we are. Uh, but we work really hard I think, at, at in fact not being alone and not keeping score in an unproductive way, but instead working hard to be together and invitational and servants. Uh, so for example, next Sunday at 11.15 after this service, where are, where are Wayne and Ruth sitting right now? Oh, oh they're, they're, well, oh yeah, you're separated. I didn't, didn't see birthday. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, you guys are moving closer to family and we'll be able to celebrate that with you. And, and next week at 2 o'clock, uh, we have Shirley Calhoun's funeral. She passed away this past week. 
Now, I'm just thinking between you two and Shirley, uh, this is a good thing, by the way. Uh, what, what would your total membership in years be at this congregation? It would be, between the three of you, it would be over 100 years, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and what, a, what, a, what a gift that is, that, that we will celebrate that with you next week. You know we will miss you and it will be a loss, and yet there's also this sense of hopefulness uh, that you remain connected always, that we remain connected always to Shirley. And, and, and that is a great power and good, is it, is it not? Is it not? And, and so faith communities do that. Um, we, we are always connected to each other. So it happens internally, and it, it happens beyond us as well. So, kinda, so that's, that's seven days from now. So eight days ago, uh, so last Saturday, we had this little project on the patio where we were hypothetically doing something we thought was kind of easy, which was getting this big post hole digger and digging these four feet deep holes, 18 inches wide, to create the foundation for the light poles that'll be next to the patio to light it at night. It'll be beautiful when it gets, gets all done. So there were like five of us at that little project, and we thought, well, that might not be enough people. So we reached out, uh, Muriel reached out to Cephas House, and uh, three guys from Cephas House joined us on this little project. And the thing about that was, uh, I don't, I'm looking at Wayne because he was a part of that. Anybody else here who was a part of that little project? Uh, so the, the, the deal on that project was when I got home from that project, uh, I made a direct path to the medicine cabinet. And I was praying to God that there'd be something in the Advil container. And there were three pills there, and I took three Advil. Because it was a three Advil sort of project. It was so much more work and so much harder than we thought it was going to be. And, and those three guys from Cephas House, now the thing is, they worked super hard. We could not have done it without them. Uh, these are men in, in recovery. But uh, the thing that was striking to me was they just came in and like started talking with us, had ideas, adjusted to the fact that half the time we didn't know what we were doing and couldn't, couldn't even get the thing started to begin with. They just rolled with it and, and shared a little bit about themselves and we did as well. In other words, here were guys who were, who were working on their recovery even in the time they were spending with us. In other words, just be real. You know, that, that's, that's any of our recovery from all of our many and varied addictions is to just be real, and they were. And it was transforming for me, at least, if for nobody else. Humility is to be real. Humility is to be secure a little bit in yourself, but secure mostly in a God um, who's very abundant to us. But more importantly, is, is unfailingly merciful to you and to me. And if you can trust that, and you're not threatened by... by somebody else, or maybe religiously what they believe, and in fact, perhaps can take the perspective that, you know, good for them, and, and what can I learn from them uh, as a part of my journey through life? That, I think, is a great place to be in the life of faith. One last thing that I think is important. Do you think the story worked? I mean, how does Luke introduce it? Luke introduces it by saying, 
There were some who thought of themselves as righteous and held others in contempt. And then Jesus tells this story, which is what? Right in their face. You think it worked? I've preached a few sermons over the years where I was just in people's face on whatever their flaw was. How well do you think those sermons work? Those sermons don't work. People don't want to hear it. But we still have the story. Because nobody ever wants to hear it right away. But sometimes the spirit works in the most resistant, denial-based hearts and opens them, opens yours, opens mine. And, and what you couldn't hear at first, maybe you can hear a week later a month later, a year later. And so you pray for that. You pray not just for mercy, but for um, the courage to actually hear what's true. We have the story still. Because apparently somewhere along the way, some people did some work on humility. And instead of burning bridges, they built them. And instead of holding their gifts to themselves, they shared the meal. And instead of having no hope for the future, they planted seeds and knew what a great harvest lay ahead of them. But mostly, in your best moments or worst this week, you can at least quote the tax collector, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner.